Morning, Bethel. So, I, uh, I'm guessing that many of you, some of you at least, are familiar with the name Elon Musk. Does anybody know who that is? Okay, okay, there we go. So, he's probably most well-known for his role as CEO of two companies. One is Tesla, and maybe the most familiar, and the other is a company called SpaceX. Tesla focuses on sustainable energy. That company makes uh, electric cars, solar panels, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas SpaceX, according to its website, quote, designs, manufactures, and launches advanced rockets and spacecraft, and it was founded to revolutionize space technology with the ultimate goal of enabling people to live on other planets. It's pretty ambitious. Uh, it's good work. So this past November on Twitter, Elon Musk encouraged people to join the workforce at Tesla, SpaceX, and two other companies that he's involved in, and he said this, there are way easier places to work, but nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. I don't know what you think about that, but someone responded, and they asked him how many hours per week are required to change the world. And he said, quote, varies person per person, but about 80 sustained, peaking above 100 at times. Pain level increases exponentially above 80. So he apparently puts his money where his mouth is. Back in August, in an interview with the New York Times, uh, during a difficult time with Tesla, he, he claimed to have been working around 120 hours a week. And he said, there were times when I didn't leave the factory for three or four days, days when I didn't go outside. This has really come at the expense of seeing my kids and seeing friends. From what I read, it seems like he was emotional about that. But when challenged, uh, he was challenged by a woman named Ariana Huffington to change the way he worked, to work more effectively, he responded on Twitter with this. Ford and Tesla are the only two American car companies to avoid bankruptcy. I just got home from the factory. You think this is an option? It is not. Now, I should point out that I don't know all the details of Elon Musk's situation, and I am not aware of his heart uh, nor his motives. So I think that uh, I should be careful not to critique him unfairly or harshly. We all should. But I do think that many of us would disagree with him when he says, nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. And I think most of us would be concerned if we knew someone who chose to work 80 to potentially up to 120 hours a week and said that that pace was necessary, not optional. But I think before we pat ourselves on the back and climb up on the high ground and look down our noses on this man in judgment, we should look in the mirror. I'm not sure what's behind Elon Musk's comments and his pace of life, but I wonder if it's something that's present in varying degrees in all of us, and that is a desire for our work to matter, a struggle to balance rest and work, and a temptation to anxiously toil 
believing that whether something succeeds or whether something fails is all on me. This morning, with it being Father's Day, we're taking a break from our series in Genesis and we're looking at Psalm 127. So this psalm warns us of a kind of prideful self-reliance that ignores God and believes that everything we undertake rests on us. And it invites us to a peaceful rest that labors, but does so humbly asking the Lord to establish the work of our hands, believing that he must, and trusting that he will. To put it another way, this psalm is a call to work. It's a call to create, to protect, to parent, putting away anxious toil and resting in the fact that the success and fruitfulness and lasting value of our labor doesn't ultimately depend on us, but on God. So I think in this sense, Psalm 127 is a psalm for the fathers among us, the mothers among us, but it's a psalm for all of us today. So this morning, we're certainly going to talk about parenting, but again, this psalm has a word for us all. It invites us to do two things. One, to restfully labor, and two, to restfully parent. So look with me at Psalm 127, verses 1 to 2, in that first point, restful labor. Solomon writes in verses 1 and 2, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So verse 1 addresses two kinds of work. The first is that of creating. So Solomon, who wrote this psalm, he says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The second type of work is that of protecting or preserving. So Solomon continues, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So you can build a house, you can create a structure, or you can serve as a watchman you can keep a lookout for enemies, ready to sound the alarm and protect the city, but ultimately, your labor will be in vain. It will be pointless if the chief builder and the chief watchman is not God. So what exactly is Solomon getting at with that? Well, I think he's saying that although we create and although we protect, nothing will ever be created Nothing will ever be protected unless God does it. Every builder who has ever constructed a house, every watchman who has ever protected a city has only had success because God willed it and because God caused it, whether they recognized it or not. There are no exceptions to this. But Solomon may also have a deeper point, specifically that if God isn't in our work, then even if he does allow it to succeed, even if he does bring success, it was done in vain. As one writer, Stephen Whitmer says, what's the point of the new house or the secure city 
if you don't have God. Life doesn't flourish apart from him. Look with me at verse 2. Solomon continues there. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The last part of that verse, it's translated, for he gives to his beloved sleep, could also be translated, he gives to his beloved in his sleep. I think that's important. Uh, John Piper points that out, and he draws this conclusion that I think is helpful. He says, quote, The first half of verse 2 says that it is vain to rise early and go late to rest. But how would the simple statement that God gives sleep discourage a person from rising early and going to bed late? He's not interested in his sleep. He's worried and wants to be about his work. But if Solomon meant, as I think he did, God gives to his beloved in his sleep, then there is a tremendously strong incentive to stop being anxious and cutting our sleep short. The incentive is this. God can perform more good for those who trust him while they sleep than they can perform with anxious labor for themselves while awake. Can you think of a better reason not to rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil? I think that's really good. So put all of that together. I think, as we've said, these verses provide a warning and an invitation. The warning is against prideful self-reliance that anxiously toils away without regard to God, believing that the success or failure of our work depends on us. God is the builder of the house, not us. God is the watchman of the city, not us. Without him, all our labor is useless. It's in vain. So we can toil away anxiously, putting hours upon hours upon hours in the office and neglecting God and rest, but nothing will get done unless God does it. And anything we do accomplish will ultimately be pointless and vain if we go without God. So there's a warning, but there's a really sweet invitation here too. Don't miss that. God is the builder of the house, not us. God is the watchman over the city, not us. And God is so powerful, and God is so good that he even works for us, for those he loves, while we're asleep. So in the words of Psalm 121, 3 to 4, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I think that has a profound effect on all of us, on our daily, daily lives. Because these things are true, we don't have to anxiously, frantically toil away like everything depends on us. Because it doesn't. It just doesn't. Instead, we are invited to go about the work God has called us to do from a position of rest, from a position of peace, trusting that God loves us. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. He's got this. He's in control. He'll accomplish 
all of his good and perfect purposes, all of his good and perfect promises. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to work hard, but it does mean that we don't need to work anxiously. And that is really good news. As I was preparing this morning, I, I read um, a blog post by one guy who had an illustration that I found really helpful. So I'm going to borrow that and apply it for you from my own perspective. Um, Chad, if you've got that picture, would you put it up on the screen? Okay, so if you don't know, that is my, well, you, you probably can't tell, but there's actually two kids there, two, two of my precious children. James is in the front, and you can barely see her. Phoebe in the pink is in the back. So believe it or not, that is inside of our house. That is in our downstairs playroom for Christmas for the kids. We um, gave a lot of our Christmas money, and we asked family to give us Christmas money, and Dave Grip helped us put this together, but we installed a rock wall inside of our house. We're absolutely insane. That's going to be a pain if we ever move, but it's really fun now. Um, so we have this rock wall in our house, and Whitney and I love it. The kids love it. It is a fun way for them to play. Uh, it's a fun way for them to get stronger, to build confidence, and an added bonus for us, it really tires them out, which we're happy with. But one, one thing we're still a bit cautious about is letting the kids play on the climbing holds that hang from the ceiling. I don't know if you can tell which ones those are, but there's, the, there's a yellow one, a neon green one, a blue one, and then some more up above it hanging down. We're, we're a little nervous for them to play from those because they're not really strong enough to hold on. And they swing, and if they're moving around and the kids are swinging and fall, we're, I'm really concerned about how they might land. I don't want somebody to break their neck down there. We do have a climbing mat, a really nice bouldering mat underneath, just in case you're worried. Um, but still, um, I, I, I'm hesitant to let them play there. But what we have done, um, what Whitney especially has done, is she'll take James and she'll hold him up by the legs. And she'll let James grab those holds. And we've done this too. We've taken these to a park uh, to, to Bellevue and let, and let him do this. She'll hold him by the legs and he'll take those holds and he'll move from one to the other. Now, what Whitney is doing is she's holding him up. She's allowing him to move. She's making movement possible. But he is still moving. He is still hanging on. He's still doing some of the work. So Whitney and I are the ones really holding him up, helping him along, keeping him safe. But he's participating in that work. So I think an application of Psalm 27 uh, applies to how we think about this rock wall. Just as James is moving along, using his strength, but we're the ones really holding him up, so is life. We are the ones who work. We labor. We work diligently. But we do so with God being the one who holds us up, who enables our work. And think about the effect of that when we really get it. Do, do you think that us holding James up as he's moving along uh, uh, disincentivizes him from actually moving? No, he still likes it. He still likes to move along the rock holds. 
It's the same for us. I think when we really grasp the fact that God is supporting our labor, that God is the one making it effective, that God is the one holding us up, it really provides a, a motive to work. It provides empowerment to labor because we know that at the end of the day, whether or not we make it, whether or not we succeed is not based on us, but on God who is giving us strength. So let's apply that specifically for us. I think this applies in a number of ways. One, let's be sure that we're not living like practical atheists, like those who claim to believe in God, but go about our daily lives like he doesn't exist. Let's be sure to humbly acknowledge our dependence on God and ask for his help. So let's pray Psalm 90, verse 17 together. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Also, let's be sure that we're not working anxiously, but diligently and joyfully and restfully, knowing that the ultimate success and fruitfulness of our endeavors doesn't depend on us, but on God. That applies to parents. We'll work through that more specifically here in a moment. But that applies at the workplace, in our jobs, in our careers. That applies to us here at Bethel as we're seeking to build up the church, disciple one another, and make disciples. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building. He's working through us, but he is the builder. And let's be sure that we trust that God loves us, that he grants us rest, that he gives to us in our sleep, and that he will accomplish all of his good purposes in our lives and labor. In the words of Jackie Hill Perry, God was up while you slept. Now that you're up, trust that he'll have just as much control of your day as he did of your night. When we are asleep, we are uh, vulnerable. Sleep is an exercise in humility. If God has us when we sleep, if he's giving to us when we sleep, why would he think he's not giving to us during the day? He is. He's there. He's holding us up. He's supporting us. So let's trust him. We are his beloved. So Psalm 127 in the broadest sense, invites us all to restful labor. But it also specifically invites us to restful parenting. And as we see, this is a work that all of us, the whole church, takes part in. And that is our second point. So look with me at verses 3 to 5. Um, we'll call this restful parenting. So Solomon says, Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world do those verses have to do with verses 1 to 2? I think that's a fair question. It's not obvious at first glance how they relate. But I think a couple of things help us here. One relates 
to the word for builders in verse 1 and children in verse 3 of the psalm. It's not uh, obvious in English. It doesn't show up uh, in English. But in Hebrew, those two words, builders and children, sound similar. So there's a connection there if you're reading it in the original language. But second, uh, the, the second clue has to do with the meaning of house in verse 1. House can literally refer to a physical dwelling place, as we've already said, but house can also mean a family. Both senses of that word show up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, David desires to build the Lord a house, a physical dwelling place, a temple, but the Lord instead tells David that he will build him a house, not referring to a physical dwelling place, not referring to the temple, but referring to a dynasty, referring to his family line. So in that one chapter, you see house used in both senses, referring to a physical dwelling place and a family. So there's a reference to house in verse 1 of the psalm, which can refer to a dwelling place or a family. And verses 3 to 5 of the psalm all have to do with children, with the family. So that said, here's how I think these verses relate to each other. Just as a house isn't built without the Lord, so children aren't created without the Lord. As verse 3 says, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So parents certainly have a part to play in bringing kids into the world. But the point is, without God, there would be no fruit of the womb. Children are a wonderful reward. They're a gift from God. Look again at how Solomon describes them in verses 4 to 5. He says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The city gate was the place where legal matters were decided. The ESV study Bible describes it as a, a, quote, combined town hall and a courthouse. It's where transactions were witnessed and where cases were decided. So the picture here in Psalm 127 is of a man, perhaps advanced in age, who is speaking with his enemies at the city gate and all the while his children or literally in this text, his sons are by his side. Do you see why that man is blessed who fills his quiver with kids? They are like arrows for providing protection from those who may do harm. And the more of them you have in the quiver, the better. So here again is another connection with the first half of the psalm. Just as God builds the city and graciously provides children, so God protects the city and graciously provides protection through the children he gives. So in other words, verses 3 to 5, I think, are in many ways a practical application of verses 1 to 2. And so in that light, I think there is much practical application for all of us, especially the fathers and mothers in the room. Several things here. So one, let's be sure to recognize our children 
for what they are. They are gifts from the gracious hand of God. Unfortunately, that is countercultural today. But fathers and mothers, all of us, oh, embrace that. Look at our precious children and give thanks. When we look at our kids, our response should be, the Lord has been good to me. Children are a gift, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But two, let's be sure that we aren't raising our children like practical atheists. Let's be sure that we aren't seeking to raise our children in our own strength without regard to God, without asking Him for His help. Instead, let's humbly ask God for His help to raise our children rightly. So in the Psalm 90, verse 17 sense, let's ask in regard to our kids, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We need to be praying for our kids. We need to be seeking the Lord's favor and blessing upon our kids. Certainly that involves praying for their salvation. So just as we can't physically create kids without God, He is absolutely essential. We also, and we know this, we can't spiritually recreate our kids on our own. If we're following Jesus, we hopefully all want our kids to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But we all must realize humbly our inadequacy, our absolute inability to bring that about, right? We can't change our kids' hearts. We can't save our kids. But guess what? God can. And in Psalm 127, we are assured that this God loves us. We are his beloved. He always does what is right, and he loves to give his children good gifts, and salvation is a good gift. So let's pray and plead with God to save our kids. But there's so much more than that than we can be praying for our children. And along those lines, I would recommend a book to you. Um, this is by Melissa Kruger. It's fairly new. Uh, it's called Five Things to Pray for Your Kids. Prayers that change things for the next generation. Now, I can, I'll confess, when I saw that title, Five Things to Pray for Your Kids, I thought, that sounds more like a blog post. I wish I could just read the article. Tell me the five things I need to pray. But that's not how the book actually reads. I was wrong. So the way the book actually works is there are a number of categories. And within each category, there are five things listed to pray for your children. So just as an example, one is save my child. Another is fill my child with spiritual fruit. Another is watch over my child. Another is praying that my, that my child will delight in God's word, that my child will be content in all things, love others, make friends, like, and, and the list goes on. So for each one of those categories, there are five prayers. And so I think if if prayer is something that you want to grow in in regard to your kids, this book could be a helpful resource. Again, it's Melissa Kruger, Five Things to Pray for Your Kids. So 
in regard to child rearing, raising up our children, let's not be practical atheists. Let's every day wake up in humble acknowledgement of our inadequacy and our need for the Lord to intervene and give us help and grace to raise our kids in his strength. So that was two. So three, let's put off anxious parenting and put on a godly kind of child rearing that takes our responsibility to our children seriously, but humbly trust the Lord who loves us with our kids. So let's trade anxious parenting for parenting and humble reliance on God while actively working, doing our part to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that's really broad. What does that look like? I think there are a lot of things. I'll mention a few. So one, that involves teaching our children God's Word in all spheres of life and pointing them continually to Jesus. So a passage that you will hear us reference often here at Bethel in regard to children's ministry and in regard to parenting is Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Teaching the commandments of the Lord to our children at all times, in all places, continually pointing them to Jesus. If we were to sum it up, maybe we could do, maybe we could say Proverbs 22.6. We should simply train up our children in the way that they should go. Or fathers, a word specifically for you, Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As parents, this is our responsibility. We are the primary disciplers of our children. Our children are not meant to be outsourced to the church. Our children primarily are our responsibility to raise, to instruct, to point to Jesus. But the church is absolutely essential as well, make no mistake. So this also involves getting the church involved. We are a family. We need each other. Parents, your kids need the church, and the church needs your kids. We are all necessary, and we all take part in raising kids to keep their eyes on Jesus. Uh, J.D. Greer, uh, he puts it this way. He says, This psalm had two audiences, Psalm 127, parents and the larger community. It was read at the birth of every Jewish baby and sung by pilgrims as they ascended Jerusalem together during their annual pilgrimage. This is because God has two gardens in which he grows children, the home and the church. The home is where kids see the gospel lived out and learn to believe in its power. 
Our kids will learn to believe the gospel less by how well we articulate it and more by how we treat other people. Do they see in us the unconditional love, graciousness, faithfulness, forgiveness, and gentleness that we say God has for them in the gospel? Kids also need someone besides their parents to speak into their lives and reinforce what's being said in the home. Reggie Joyner in Parenting Beyond Your Capacity writes, children need more than just a family that gives them unconditional acceptance and love. They need a tribe that gives them a sense of belonging and significance. So, parents, you are absolutely essential in the lives of your children. God has given them to you as gifts to be stewarded, to be pointed to Christ. But church, we are all essential as well in the raising up of kids in the way that they should go. We come alongside parents to partner with them as they disciple their kids. This is why when we do children and family dedications here at Bethel, we acknowledge this. We, we, we typically say something like this. This dedication is a whole Bethel family dedication where we all together as the new covenant community, the house of God, commit together to raise or to help raise the next generation to follow Jesus. And then we ask the Bethel family if we will as a whole commit to that loving support of the family. It's because we are all essential. We all have a part to play. This is Psalm 78 verses 4 to 7. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." We are all as a family to be about that work. And so I would say here, children's ministry volunteers, thank you. We are grateful for you and how you invest in the lives of kids here. Your work is not secondary. You're not watching kids so the rest of us can be in the service. You're watching kids doing vital ministry, vital work. You are telling them, teaching them the commandments of God. You're appointing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is essential work. I would also give a plug here as the guy who oversees children's ministry. I would miss an opportunity if I did not. We need kids workers. We need more people to help. And so if you are not helping and if you want to do something, that, like if you want to be a part of vital work that is essential to the life of the church, there's obviously loads of things you can do, but you certainly wouldn't go wrong serving children, sharing the gospel with them. They are the fruit of the womb. They are a gift. They are the upcoming generation, a vital part of our church family. So if you would like to get involved, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to chat with you. Come and see me after the service is over. So it involves raising our children up in the way that they should go, fulfilling Psalm 127, viewing our kids as gifts from God, praying for them, teaching our kids God's word in all spheres of life, coming together as the whole church to raise our kids, 
to disciple them, the church partnering with parents. And another thing, it involves raising our children to know Jesus so much as depends on us and make him known. So again, uh, listen to this quote from J.D. Greer. He, he teases this out really powerfully, I think. He says, Jim Elliott, who was explaining to his mother and father why he would leave a promising career in the United States to serve as a missionary in South America, said, what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. Our kids were given to us for the purpose of the mission. When we treat them less like arrows and more like accessories to our lives, we're not only stunting their development, but also discouraging them from finding God's plan altogether. The call to follow Jesus and the call to mission are the same. Follow Jesus, and he will make you a fisher of men. When you accept the call to Jesus, you accept the call to mission. That's the truth that should shape the way we raise our children. So Bethel, parents, church, we must point our kids to Jesus, call them to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation, and call them to take the good news of the gospel to others and implore other people to repent and be reconciled to God. In that sense, this ministry to children, uh, this gift of children can even take a spiritual sense. It does so in regard to evangelism. So children are a gift from the Lord. Spiritual children are a gift from the Lord. And so we all, in, in ministry to kids here, but also as we leave this place and go out into the workplace and go out into our neighborhoods, should be humbly depending on God and asking him to help us make disciples. To ask him to, through us, make spiritual children. Evangelism. This is the work that we can all be about. So the psalm has so much to say for parents, so much to say for the church. Now, I would add here a word to the parents of wayward children. I think this psalm has a word for you as well. So Psalm 127 turns us away when we rightly understand it from anxious toil and turns us to humble dependence on God, on the God who loves us. So if you are a parent here this morning and if you're struggling, if you're struggling with your kids, if, if you have a young child struggling to obey, if you have an older child who has walked away from the faith of his or her father or mother, I think there's a word here for you too, and that is keep trusting God. Keep praying. Keep pleading with him to intervene and keep ministering to your child and serving your child and imploring your child to turn to the Lord. Earlier uh, this, this year, back in April, 
Um, Pastor Chris and I went to a conference um, uh, put on by the Gospel Coalition. And while we were at that conference, a pastor named Legan Duncan delivered a message on Mark 7, 24 to 30. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mark 7, you don't have to turn there. Um, but I do want to share with you something that, that he said that has really stuck with me. So in verses 24 to 30 of Mark 7, that's the passage about the Syrophoenician woman, the woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit, and she comes to Jesus, and she begs Jesus to cast this demon out of her daughter. And that's the one where Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answers him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Legan Duncan delivered a message on that sermon. So if you want to learn more about it, I would encourage you to go listen to it. Ask me and I can give you a link to it later. But what I want to share is a quote that he, he shared in his sermon. It's a quote by J.C. Ryle uh, in regard to in regard to kids, and I think it, it really applies here this morning to parents of wayward children. So uh, listen to this. J.C. Ryle, he says this. The woman who came to our Lord in the history now before us must doubtless have been in deep affliction. She saw a beloved child possessed by an unclean spirit. She saw in her a condition in which no teaching could reach the mind and no medicine could heal the body a condition only one degree better than death itself. She hears of Jesus and beseeches him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She prays for one who could not pray for herself and never rests until her prayer is granted. By prayer, she obtains the cure which no human means could obtain. Through the prayer of the mother, the daughter is healed. On her own behalf, that daughter did not speak a word, but her mother spoke for her to the Lord and did not speak in vain. Hopeless and desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. Man, that's encouraging. So, parents, as you're praying for your kids to come to know the Lord, take heart. Where there's a praying mother, where there's a praying father, there's always hope. God hears our prayers. Parents of wayward children, of children who are struggling, of children who aren't embracing Jesus and the faith of their mom and dad, take heart. Where there's a praying mother, where there's a praying father, there's always hope. The Lord hears our prayers. The Lord is good. The Lord accomplishes all of his very good purpose. He is working everything out together for good for those who love him. And so that means, because our God is at work, we can put away anxious toil and trust him, even when it's hard. So this psalm, I believe, gives us a call to labor restfully, to work from a position of peace and rest. This psalm, I believe, gives us a call to parent restfully, to parent from a position of peace and rest. Whether it's your career, whether it's seeking to share the gospel with your neighbors, whether it's 
raising up your children in the home. We don't need to fear. God's got this. So Solomon, who wrote this psalm, he failed to live this out, if we know Solomon's story. D.A. Carson, he puts it this way. He says, Sadly, Solomon is a figure whose great wisdom was sometimes not followed in his own life. His own building program, both physical and metaphorical, became foolish. His kingdom a ruin, and, and his household, not least his multiplied pagan marriages, a systematic denial of the claims of the living God. So, in regard to his own advice, Solomon failed. He was imperfect. But the good news is that Solomon is not our high priest. Solomon is not our redeemer. Solomon was not a failed Messiah. Our Messiah is Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He perfectly lived out all of Scripture. We have all, like Solomon, failed. None of us have lived up to God's standards perfectly. We've all sinned. We've all broken the law. We all deserve judgment and death. Jesus didn't. Jesus, God, the God-man, perfectly lived the life that we've all failed to live, and he died on the cross for our sins as a substitute so that we could be known by God, so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could have peace with him, so that we could take a psalm like Psalm 127 and really put it to work in our hearts. And he rose from the dead, accomplishing everything that he set out to do, proving that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, come to save his people from their sins. And it is this God, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who gives us this sweet word of promise in Matthew eleven twenty-seven to 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's an invitation for us, an invitation for us to rest in Jesus. So if you are here this morning, and if you are not a Christian, hear Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 to 30. Good works, labor, will never make you right with God. You can never accomplish reconciliation with God because of your sin. You need another's perfection to count for you. And that's what Jesus offers. Cease from your striving, from your anxious toil to save yourself, and trust Jesus to make you right with God, to save you, to give you peace with him, to forgive you for your sins. He will. He'll do that on the spot right here this morning. If you would love to learn more about that, if you have more questions, feel free to come and chat with me after. For those of us who are trusting Jesus, hear that word as well. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Is that not what Psalm 127 is calling us to? Psalm 127 is not, a ce- is not, a, uh, is not calling us to cease working. Psalm 127 is calling us to cease working anxiously. It's calling us to trust the Lord in our labor. And we have good reason to. We are his beloved. He loves us. He will accomplish all of his good purposes for us. And in him, we have a Savior who invites us to a place of rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's embrace that this morning in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We do acknowledge our dependence on you, and we pray, we ask you to please establish the work of our hands. Lord, give us wisdom in our labor. Give us wisdom in our parenting. Give us wisdom as a church in how we disciple children and how we minister to them and how we minister to moms and dads. Lord, please make our work fruitful. Lord, help us as a church family and our culture to create. Help us to protect. Help us to do so with uh, skill, with efficiency, with excellence. But Lord, please also establish the work of our hands in regard to the children among us. Save our kids. Lord, please empower moms and dads in the home to take up the mantle of parental discipleship and faithfully point their kids to Jesus. Give them grace in that effort. And Lord, give us grace as a church to come alongside them and partner with them in the instruction of their children. So make our efforts fruitful in the home. Do that for our parents. Do that for us as a church family here. Lord, so please, we we pray your blessing upon us. Please hear us. Please give us grace uh, for our sake. Please do it for your glory, and please do it for the sake of the great name of Jesus. In his name, amen.